I'm glad you're preaching today and not me. <laughs> One of the great joys in summertime is that we hear from members of the congregation and guests about their stories of faith. This past winter during Lent and into the spring, we had a series called Exploring Our Faith in which we were all invited to try to figure out where our faith is right now, how we might define it or describe it. And out of that, we started asking folks if they'd be willing to share this summer some of their milestones of faith, things they've learned along the way. And I started off by talking about a moment when I felt like I had truly been an instrument of God. Amy, our associate pastor, spoke about listening for the call. Chad and Kendra Moore talked about the milestones of doubt along their journey of faith. We heard from Ramiro Martinez about how the milestone of welcome in this congregation was a place for his faith. We heard then from Amanda Grant Rose from Common Cathedral, which is a church on Boston Common every Sunday of the year for people who are unhoused, about how sometimes the milestone is hidden in plain sight. We then heard from Priya Devavaram, one of our wise youth, who let us know about how she's learned to affirm life in the midst of death this past year. We then heard uh, from, I thought I had all these, we heard, um, who is it? Casey Brown, thank you very much. We heard from Casey Brown, one of our transgendered members, about the milestones they have found in finding a place where they feel welcome. And last Sunday, we were delighted to hear from Denise Patman about how she has looked for the signs of faith in a faraway place, that being Japan. And I'm grateful today we hear from John Carter, a bona fide theologian in our midst who's getting his Ph.D. at Boston College, to talk about that tension between loneliness and community. We're going to hear next week from Alicia Shu and Terry Bruce about their experiences at Common Art, and we're going to hear from our own Josephat on the 25th and a newer member, Matt Weber, on September 1st. So I invite John to come forward with his message for us today. Thank you for that introduction, and thank you for that um, wonderfully read um, selection from those stories. By way of background, as some of you know, I'm currently a PhD student in theology at Boston College. I grew up Baptist, and after attending Episcopal and Methodist churches for a couple years, returned to being a Baptist in 2005. Before moving to Boston to start PhD work, I have worked as a lawyer for a little over 10 years, and then after having a call experience to become a minister, I att attended Divinity School and was ordained as a Baptist minister in 2010. At Crescent Hill Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, um, you'll notice at my request that we're singing a hymn later on in the service, uh, specifically written for that church's anniversary. Um, my specialty in theology is a subfield called theological ethics or what's sometimes called moral theology, which just means that I focus on the theology of human actions and their ethical and moral dimensions. And so as a moral theologian, or at least a, a moral theologian in training, um, I can very much get behind the theme for worship this summer, milestones in my faith. As a general principle, I strongly believe that it is the challenges that we overcome in life or that we sometimes don't for reasons outside of our control that give our lives meaning. Having said that, I think the danger in focusing on something called milestones 
is that it can sometimes give an overly linear description of the Christian experience, or at least it can for me. Since sometimes my Christian journey feels less like a quest or a hiking trip and more like I'm on a treadmill, or even better, doing laps on a track around and around, I think I'm making progress, and the scenery changes, but I keep seeing the same markers along the way no matter how many times I've passed them before. And of course, sometimes I don't even feel like I'm on a track. Sometimes I feel like it's more like an Escher drawing that some of you may be familiar with, where the dimensions don't quite make sense, and random stairways lead to the backside of doors and paths that I've just come through. And in this vein, I'd like to talk about something that's kind of a milestone for me, but it's also a recurrent theme, because that's how my experience of being a Christian has unfolded. I'm talking about a feeling that you're alone. I think this is important to acknowledge because as often as we emphasize relationality, love for neighbor, even love of enemy, the communion of saints and especially the communion of our church family here at United Parish, we can give the impression that there is no isolation, no loneliness in the life of a good Christian. And, well, on one hand, I want to agree with that. And on the other, I want to say it's seldom that simple. In our lives, following Christ, there are times when we are going to feel alone. There are times we undoubtedly, necessarily, irresolvably will be alone. And at the same time, it is often the case that we are not as alone without any recourse of human connection as we imagine ourselves to be. And that is what I like about those two episodes that we just heard read from the book of Genesis. Two different single parents, each out in the wilderness, each with the child that they loved and hoped for, each facing the tragic death of that child. As a side note, I would mention that many of you may have heard the story of Abraham and Isaac on the mountain and how God provided a substitute sacrifice, but I suspect that fewer of you are as familiar with the story of Hagar and the near death of her son Ishmael. In church, we often use the story of Abraham and Isaac to emphasize certain themes about the chosenness of the nation of Israel through the line of Isaac. But for now, I'd like to set aside those themes that we commonly associate with that story and just focus on the parallels with the story of Hagar. They appear almost exactly right next to one another in the text. And by putting them together, we can see some really important things emerge. The attachment of parents to their children, the perilous nature of a child's life in the ancient Near East, and the consistency of how, when things felt most without hope, most alone, for each of these parents, they heard a voice from heaven saying, look up, lift up your eyes. And when they did, they were able to see the resources that would save the lives of their children. The stories depict such a lovely pair, like two panels in one of those religious pieces of artwork depicting saints, which are, which are referred to as icons, that I wish we never told one of these stories without the other. After divinity school, I spent a year as a hospital chaplain at a hospital in Greensboro, North Carolina, a year that most definitely qualifies as a milestone in my faith. In addition to various types of pastoral visits with patients and their families, 
We chaplains were often called upon to offer a word of prayer at the time of patients passing. And on many occasions, I stood with people by the bedside of their loved one. And the person standing beside me would say, tears streaming down their face. When this person dies, whether it was their parent or their spouse or their friend, whatever the relationship was, when this person dies, I will be alone. I will be all alone. And quite often there would be other people in the hospital room at that very moment who were there almost solely for the purpose of making sure the person speaking to me was not alone. And on the one hand, I don't want to undervalue that a single person can make in our lives that feeling of being alone if we lose them. But on the other hand, sometimes we just need to lift up our eyes to see that we are not as alone as we imagine ourselves to be. In those situations in the hospital room, I wanted to say to the person who felt alone, would you just look around and see the people who love you, who are here just for you? God brings people into our lives wherever we are who are there to be a gift so that we will not be alone. And yet, earlier in the story in Genesis, Before the stories that we heard about Abraham and Hagar, God specifically commands Abraham, go, go forth, leave your family house to the place that I will show you. And Abraham embarks on on a famous journey. Likewise, in the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples if they would truly follow him, they must be willing to leave everything behind. On the surface, it seems they're being called to a new community to replace their old ones. But as we know, later in the Bible, later even in Genesis, that new community can get pretty fragmented as well. All of this carries a lot of meaning for me. My parents still live in the house they bought in 1965. On both sides of my family, there are ancestors who settled as far back as the 1790s literally within 10 or 15 miles of where I grew up. And yet I felt a leading to leave all of that at the age of 18 to go to college 450 miles away. And this was no departure born of estrangement. I have always been and remain very close to my parents, to each of them. Years later, during my years practicing law, when I felt I had been a failure at some things I had been working at, I decided that whatever else changed in my life, whoever else came and went, my family had been the constant. So around the age of 30, I moved back to Kentucky to practice law with my father. Several years later, in 2005, I bought a place to live in Louisville, Kentucky, the first deed I had ever signed at the age of 34. And, of course, the very next year, I felt the leading to leave again that I mentioned earlier to change the course of my life and become a minister, again moving far away to go to to school. Like the Baptist and theologian that I am, I return to the Bible again and again, and I get no easy answers. I find Jesus at the end of his life, abandoned by those he had called friends. And unlike Hagar and Abraham, when he lifted his eyes up at the end as he hung on the cross, he didn't get help. All All he saw was a godless sky. And yet after the resurrection, he tells his followers, and through the written text, he tells us today, in my father's house, there are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, would I not have told you? 
Like so much else in the Christian life, I consign this tension, this dilemma to the category of paradox. God did not create us to be alone. And in the end, in the final analysis, we won't be alone. But in the meantime, in this created existence, at various points in our lives, we have to be alone. We have to face challenges alone, feeling more alone than seems right or just or loving. And yet, and yet, and yet, I continue to believe that the biggest lie anyone ever tells themselves is that they are alone. And in my life, that has always proved to be the case. To the contrary, if nothing else, in the darkest corners I have found myself, I've always encountered others who might have been alone if I had not been there. And through God's grace, neither of us was alone. And so, my sisters, brothers, siblings in Christ, may you have the courage to go into that recurring milestone, the wilderness of loneliness. But when you get there, don't forget to look up, look around, and maybe see that you are not as alone as you feel. Or maybe you're there so that when someone else looks up, they'll see you. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen.